Welcome to Policy Emma Combs, a data-focused conversation on trade-offs. I'm Carlos Carvalho from the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin. So it's a pleasure to have Professor Mike Munger from Duke University, Professor of Political Science and Economics. Mike, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. I'm glad to be here, Carlos. So, Mike, we're, we're recording this video trying to understand people's process of thinking about this pandemic from, from the very beginning until where, where we're now. And, and in, in particular, we're helping our students and the people that engage with us here at the Salem Center to understand the process that goes into policymaking. So that is the, the sort of objective of our, our chat today. So let's go back to March or early February. Well, when were you started, when did you start thinking about this? When did you start like being like, huh, there's something coming our way here. What to be done? What was your thinking then? First time I thought of it was in early March. Um, I had just been up at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, the last week of February and had met with a lot of students and flown and hadn't thought anything about it. And then the first week of March, the Public Choice Society meetings were scheduled, and I am one of the past presidents of the Public Choice Society. We have members in 16 countries, and we had to decide whether we were going to hold or cancel the meetings, and they were in Los Angeles. And within a week, I went from saying, well, this is nonsense, obviously we should have the meetings, to saying we have to cancel even if we still have to pay the hotel and it turns out that, unsurprisingly, the hotel said, you're right, we'll refund your, your deposit. So the, for me, it was telescoped into just a week from thinking this is something that won't affect me to canceling the Public Choice Society meetings for the first time in almost 60 years. So what was the, 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 the updating? What was the data that sort of like got into your, your utility function there and, and in your processing that allowed you to, to make the change? Well, part of it was easier because it was in Los Angeles, which was one of two hotspots in the United States. At the time, Seattle and Los Angeles were the worst, and very quickly, New York passed them. And so just having to go through the airport in Los Angeles was a kind of uniquely dangerous thing. A lot of our professors, I'm 62, but I'm relatively young for some of the graybeards that come there with their walkers and ear horns. So... Um, for elderly people, it, it clearly, by then, even had become pretty dangerous. What I started to think about next was the impact on what the way that universities might react and what might happen to in the economy. And so one of the reasons that I, I like doing talks like this is that I actually have to try to think about those questions, which normally I think, you know, I don't know enough. But one problem with public policy, as your students will find out, I should say, Carlos, that I, I was the dean of a Master of Public Administration program at UNC Chapel Hill. We expected our students to be better than we were because faculty can say, well, let's do another study. Let's try to get more data. Whereas decision makers actually have to decide. You have to say, and, and not deciding is a choice. And it's one that you, the prudence does not always require that you do nothing. Sometimes prudence requires that you act. And so I have been thinking about universities and about the economy. I did a, an interview with Nick Gillespie, who was a reporter for uh, Reason Magazine, and he, he did it online. And when I started to think about what's going to happen to unemployment, what's going to happen to the central cities, I arrived at a prediction that I hope is wrong, but is pretty grim. 
I now believe that by the middle of July, there will be martial law in New York, Chicago, and Los Angeles, and that we'll have military-style food rationing. Because the for whether for good or ill, the economy has been devastated. And there are people who won't have jobs. They still won't have jobs. Millions, tens of millions of people still in those central cities still won't have jobs. And um, I expect that the result will be riots out of desperation. Also, political demagogues will use this opportunity to blame others and say, we have to use this as an opportunity to use violence to achieve our aims. So I went from thinking, well, it was nice to travel back from Hartford, Connecticut, to worrying about martial law with armored personnel carriers on the main street corners in our large cities, giving out rice and beans. And so more like Venezuela, so not a functioning market system, not a functioning system of supply chain delivery, but military vehicles coming in with bags of, of rice and beans and then rationing them using ration cards, no functioning markets for substantial parts of the country. That was in, what was that interview in March, you said? Yeah, March 10th. March 10th. Wow, I'm, you were not that wrong. I hope that I'm still wrong. But <laughs> I've, I've, I hope I'm still wrong. It's only June. If it's this bad in June, because there are, there are a lot of the reason why there are riots in large cities is economic uncertainty. The spark was uh, the actions of the police in Minneapolis. But the, there's an economic problem. Right. So, so, you know, thinking about the trade-off that we were facing early March, you saw, but did you see, um, uh, did you think about the trade-off of, okay, what if we do nothing? Do you think that, that your prediction then was, we'll be indifferent to doing nothing versus going into the, the, the lockdown that we did? I knew for a fact that I didn't know enough to be able to say what the correct course of action was. So the, my medical concern was the pretty traditional one about just flattening the curve. There's two strategies that we might use. One is mitigation. And mitigation means that we just reduce the worst parts of the effect until we've achieved herd immunity and maybe get to the point where we have a vaccine. The other is suppression. And suppression means that we think that the loss of lives that will happen as a result of the epidemic are so great that any economic consequence is acceptable. And I was a fan of mitigation, not of suppression. So what I thought was we have to reduce the number of cases to the point where the hospital system can handle the number of people that are sick at any given time. But that's because I thought we're all going to get this. I thought it was like the flu, and we're all going to get this. Now, it's not so clear we're all going to get this, but we use suppression and not mitigation. And so my prediction was more, once it was clear we were going to use suppression, what are the economic consequences going to be? So I'm not an expert. The, the choice between mitigation and suppression, I can't say which is better. I do know that an obvious consequence of our suppression strategy is to devastate the economy to such an extent that we will no longer have food delivery systems in our major cities by the middle of the summer. I know that. And, and unfortunately, I think that those two strategies, mitigation and suppression, as you point out, it's, it, it was somehow co co confused by and not, and not put, put forward clearly by our, by our policymakers and say, okay, here's our choices and we're choosing this one and we understand the consequences of this one. 
he was not put forward. I don't think there was a there was a lot of. Uh, well, and so the you you could tell that happened because we made these plans to have to have tents, and we emptied all of the hospitals. So all of the hospitals had to put off the elective surgery that they depend on for their budgets. So the paradox is we have hospitals going bankrupt As because they were empty. We have hospitals going bankrupt because they were empty. We, we chose suppression without really making it clear that's what we were choosing. So I don't know if they were confused or it was a bait and switch, but we ended up choosing suppression. We didn't come anywhere near our medical capacity except in New York for about two weeks. And even, New York, even New York, right? I think that uh, uh, New York had a stockpile at some point of 30,000 ventilators. At its, at its peak, it used 5,000. So it's, it's, it's even there, where it was the worst we've seen in the world in some ways, was not a, a, as bad as, as, as expected. Um, so going back to the suppression uh, idea, um, the, the, the government actions needed for suppression are something that... that you know, you know, you know my general tendencies when thinking about government. I, I distrust their ability to plan very carefully, to have the knowledge that's necessary to make something work, especially at that scale. Um, but also, there's the, the, the our social contract. We have some notion of what governments can or cannot do. How are you thinking about that, or how you know under our system of government? What was your sort of reaction to this use of emergency powers to to create the you know, so-called lockdowns that, that we saw everywhere? Again, I'm not sure about that because I'm not good enough at epidemiology to know, because there's, there's two factors to, to this disease. One is how contagious it is and how it's transmitted, and the other is how deadly. So at some point, if you don't know those two things, you know that you don't know, and prudence might require that you act to forestall the worst outcomes. Now. The difficulty is a government that tries to do everything is unlikely to, to be able to do anything well. And so there was a, one of the best podcasts that I've heard in the last year was a comparison on Planet Money, on National Public Radio, a comparison between South Korea and the United States. Both South Korea and the United States found out their first case on January 20th. The reaction of South Korea was immediately to enlist private labs under contract each to try to, at the local level, develop a plan for contact tracing. So it was much more bottom-up. They used a contracting system and they enlisted the private sector. The United States, the, the great beacon of capitalism, immediately centralized everything in the CDC. And they actually had some tests that already worked and decided that they would start start over, start on their own. And they botched it. So this, this NPR podcast on Planet Money is surprisingly honest about the way that the U.S., by relying on bureaucracy, got this wrong. And South Korea, which is a much more centralized system, recognized that they need two things. One is decentralized, where the man on the spot knows about the value of local action, just like Friedrich Hayek said. But the other is to enlist the power of, of the private sector to mobilize a supply chain. What the private sector does is it already has these, con these contacts. So you can mobilize a supply chain. So if, if I say, all right, we're going to have a government action, and in fact, the, for a while we talked about um, using the Defense Production Act, which was going to take General Motors and they're going to make all these ventilators. Well, that would have worked, except we tried to do it top down rather than having regional or even 
more decentralized system, which is what South Korea did. Now, to be fair, South Korea is tiny by comparison, and it's extremely densely populated. The United States is really spread out, and the state systems don't articulate very well together. So in some ways, my criticism is uh, unfair. But the, the two things, I would say it actually counts more in the United States. In a federal system with that's geographically diverse and expansive, using a decentralized market-based approach like South Korea did was actually even more imperative for the United States. So many of the U.S. wounds, both in terms of deaths and in terms of economic devastation, are self-inflicted. So when you talk about decentralization and using the private sector and markets, again, the markets need, need, need clear signals to act, right? Um, and the government, by trying to centralize things, stop that flow of information to, and it's also not only true for testing, but it's true for PPEs, for protective materials, for the development of vaccine, for allocation of resources, et cetera. Um, um, I think you, you talk about price, price gouging a lot and, and, and explain to us a little bit about your thinking in that. Because again, in emergencies, it's also something that comes up, right? All of a sudden we're out of toilet paper and whomever has toilet paper wants to sell for a little bit more money and there all of a sudden there's some politician comes along and says i want to put you in jail because you're going to try to price gouge for toilet paper is that did that dynamic play a role you think in our in our watching of, of the process here well the, the, that dynamic played a really big role and what's interesting is to recognize that people don't really understand what price gouging is so i actually had quite a few people block me on twitter because i was gleeful for several days after <laughs> Well, Governor Cuomo in New York said, please send us your PPE. We will pay a premium. That's price gouging. Right. Remember that in an economy, scarcity is a shortage of products that are needed. High prices are a signal of that scarcity. If you have a policy that suppresses prices, you destroy the signal and you do nothing to address the problem of scarcity. In fact, you make it worse. So the, the choice in an emergency is between two not very good options, high prices or empty shelves. High prices are better than empty shelves. And Governor Cuomo proved that by saying, we will pay more. So that if I can pay a premium and get my workers the PPE that they, that they have to have in order to do their jobs, that's what the price system is telling you. And let me say one other thing about prices. Prices are a signal of scarcity, and three things happen when prices go up. First, consumers have a moral incentive to take into account the needs of other people. If you have price suppression, which is what price gouging laws are, you're saying there's plenty, take all you want. But if prices are high, I think, oh, that other people must need this too. That's a really important signal. So the first thing prices do is it, it tells you to leave some for some other people who are behind you. And they may not, if they're literally behind you, they might say, hey, leave some for me and I'll feel bad. But they may not get there for an hour. They're trying to order it online. So prices are an abstract, decentralized signal that tells everybody, look, there's not enough of this stuff. We need this for someone else. Second thing high prices do is tell producers to make more. I'm ashamed to admit that just today from Walmart, the Munger family received a shipment of 96 rolls of toilet paper. 
<laughs> How big is the household? It's well, it's we're, we're stocking up, but the fact is that the high prices meant that it, it happens. I also own 35 acres of timberland and some of it's pine trees. So we, we, we will cut part of it and sell it for paper. The price of pine has gone very high. A bunch of people have switched from being construction crews to harvesting pine trees. So price, without anybody giving any orders, price told people all over the country, stop what you're doing and find ways to make more of this stuff that people need. Third, high prices tell entrepreneurs to find ways to make substitutes. And there aren't really substitutes for toilet paper, although apparently demand for bidets has gone way up. I was going to say, I have a friend that bought one of those Japanese uh, automatic, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but for, for most people, that's not a viable option. But the, the, there were a bunch of N95 masks. We, we had bought some before because I, I tend to be one of those people that is a prepper. I, I'm worried about having things for an emergency. So we, we donated 300 pairs of gloves and masks because we had quite a bit. And we donated them. But uh, now we just got several very nice cloth masks. And those never existed before. These are washable cloth masks that also have a filter in them. Entrepreneurs thought of ways to say, you know, we can actually make these with cloth in a way that for many people, not first responders, not people that work in hospitals, but for people like me, it's a perfectly adequate way to do it. So the price system said, leave some for somebody else, make more if you can, and find substitutes. Price gouging laws prevent all three of those things. Now, I do have some sympathy for saying that we needed not to have price gouging for PPE because my argument about price gouging assumes that the elasticity of supply, which means the the responsiveness, there is possible to increase the supply. If you only have a limited amount, maybe we do need some other form of rationing. So this is not an argument that we would, if we were in a small town and you have a hospital, People should donate PPE to the workers. That, uh, we, have, we have a duty of charity. But most of the time, it is possible to get a pretty quick supply-side response. In fact, that is what has happened. We have plenty of this stuff now. It's expensive, but we have plenty of this stuff. So price gouging laws do nothing to solve the problem of scarcity. But they suppress the signal that would tell people try to solve the problem of scarcity. So they're a disaster. So can you talk a little bit about that in the context of, of a vaccine? I think one of the things that we're seeing right now is that, of course, there's a huge incentive to, to, for us to develop a vaccine to COVID. Um, but at the same time, it costs an enormous amount of money. So again, we have a choice of trying to do this centralized by the central planner or by allowing our pharmaceutical companies all over the world to invest and try to find a solution for it. But that's only going to work if they have, again, the signal of prices to uh, be able to cash on this if they, they are able to, to, to do it successfully. There's a lot of discussions about, oh, who gets this first? Is this moral for, let's say, the United States to pay its way and get it first before other poor countries, et cetera, et cetera. How, do we think about it differently in that situation? Vaccine's kind of a unique problem. And if I'm a pharmaceutical company, I weigh the very high costs for certain against the extremely uncertain prospect of being the first to discover and patent a usable vaccine. So I don't know if I want to get in that business if I'm a pharmaceutical company. So the 
this, in a way, it reminds me of what the British government did to try to encourage people to figure out a way to measure longitude. To do that, you had to come up with a clock that worked on board a sailing ship for at least six months. It was accurate within a second. So they paid a huge bounty to do this because nobody individually had enough incentive to do it. Well, it may be that the some sort of subsidy for kind of the basic science that leads us to the point where we know enough about the vaccine itself may be required. But the decentralized search means that many different companies are going to be searching on many different dimensions. And it it may be an RNA vaccine. An RNA vaccine is really easy and fast. It's just extremely expensive to make and it's really perishable. So it's a difficult thing to to get the supply chain for that together. I don't expect that we will have a widely available and usable vaccine before at least February of next year. So we pretty much have to plan without it. It's just too expensive to put it together and to get it tested. And to be fair, the testing part of it is really important. You want to make sure that it actually is effective and doesn't have side effects. And it takes months to be able to learn that. So you have a pretty large, I don't think that vaccines are as good a hope as what I think would be a better plan. And that is have a a lot more private labs involved in testing and not testing for president for the presence of the pathogen have testing for presence of the antigen. So I can tell if you have antibodies. It doesn't mean you're immune, but you're much more resistant. That means that you could work in a restaurant. It means that you could work as a first responder because you're substantial and and pay them more. Let labor price gouge. That's another reason a lot of people blocked me because they would say, you know, those nurses, they should make more money. And I said, ah, you're a price gouger. Look at you. You're, You're charging higher price just because we need this. Well, it's not price gouging. Let's pay those people that are able to get the economy and the health system back on track. Let's pay them extra. That would be great. But I, so the, what I would focus on in the near term is much more wide distribution of testing about the presence of antibodies. Because if we could do that, that's an intermediate step towards reopening. Final question on this topic. Um, the same way that, that, again, the price signals are so important for ramping up production of something that's scarce, right? Uh, we have, governments decided to lay down laws that said, you're essential versus you're not essential. And things like, you know, you're essential if you sell groceries. Well, but, you know, selling groceries has a lot of different things that go in the process of selling groceries that government might not understand that are essential parts of it. So decision by governments and bureaucrats to decide what's essential or not rely on, on, on mostly the political process and not necessarily something that has to do with, with resource allocation uh, in a, through a market economy. So I was very concerned about that in the beginning. I was concerned that all of a sudden we'd start seeing shortages of really important things because, you know, I don't know what goes into the production of a lot of things. Like, for example, right, like toilet paper, maybe it's one of those things affected or whatever, whatever it is. I'm actually sort of surprised that we got to be where we are and it seems that almost nothing is really in, 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 in deep shortage right now. And I'm sort of really really glad that the American economy is so resilient. Um, but that was one thing that I was concerned in the beginning. And, and, and so anyway, so, so 
did you see any alternatives to that at that point in time when government is saying, we need to, we're going to shut down, we're going to intervene and shut down, which you saw that was bad. But to me, that was the main concern of like, all of a sudden we're going to break down the chains of production because we don't understand how they work. Nobody does. Well, and that was part of your question earlier. There is some confusion between mitigation and suppression. And at some point, we can't have complete suppression because people have to eat and they have to have basic services. And so we, in the economy, we basically tried to mitigate. And if it was essential, maybe it was economically essential. How do we normally decide what's essential for people? We let them decide. And so if they want to go out and they want to pay money for this, they've decided that's essential. Interestingly, the model of many people on the left, Sweden, that model of socialism, they chose mitigation exclusively. They didn't do any suppression. And so the restaurants stayed open. They did have quite a few deaths, but the damage to their economy has been much less. I think it'll be interesting the the epidemiologist who supported this for Sweden, because they were trying to establish herd immunity faster, it said we probably would do it differently now if we had it to do over. So there, there's, a, there's quite a bit of room between having the central government decide, all right, you're essential and you're not, knowing they'll get it wrong in ways that are likely, we're not going to see for a while that parts of the economy are devastated and they're actually dead. So it's, it's like looking at a coral reef. It looks okay, but it's actually dead. There's nothing there but bone. And the Sweden, which has had quite a few deaths, the economy's in pretty good shape. They may recover pretty quickly. And if they have herd immunity, their deaths are going to start falling and ours are going to continue because flattening the curve means that you have many more deaths for a much longer period. The United States is still doubling. We're only doubling every two months, but we're still doubling. That means that if that continues every two months, another 100,000 deaths, that's a lot. And so the Sweden, in trying to get through this fairly quickly, may have threaded a needle. They may not have. But the, to your question, Sweden said, we're going to leave it up to the individual to decide what's essential. In the United States, we tried to say the government's going to decide what's essential. And the kicker, which is really unfortunate, suppose that I work at a grocery store in a central city, in a, in a pretty rough neighborhood, and I make $12 an hour. Um, there are people that got laid off, got unemployment from the government for $600 a week. I make 450 a week and I'm working and I have to leave my children at home. So all of the incentives were for people not to find work, not to participate. So the, suppose that the grocery store is trying to hire someone. This is essential. Well, I'm not going to go work at a grocery store for 450 a week when I get 600 a week for staying home. So the, the government actually made it very difficult, even for what it called essential work to be carried out because they did a perfectly sensible thing, and that is we're going to have unemployment compensation to try to keep people from starving. So the, the combination of lack of inf information and perverse incentives made this much worse than in retrospect it had to be. So let's fast forward to now. We learned a lot about, about, about this disease since March when a lot of the, the sort of suppression ideas were put in place, right? And, and now it seems that every single state is moving into a mitigation um, strategy. Everybody's opening with some restrictions, with some sort of like understanding that it's going to be with us for a while. As you said, there'll be deaths for a while until we get to herd immunity or a vaccine. 
And it, it might be the case that, as you said, also that doesn't matter really what we did, as long as there's no vaccine, whether we do a bunch of deaths at once or we do it at over a year, the, the total number is the same. One strategy might have killed us in the long run, one strategy might not have killed us in the long run. Um, so we are, we are now learning that a couple of things. I think that the, 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 um, the spread seems to be not as bad as we thought it was going to be. And the fatality rate is not as bad as we thought initially. So those two things are, are positive updates, still pretty bad, still not, not. People that like to compare to the flu, it's three to five times the flu, uh, uh, which is not, not pleasant. But we are in a mitigation strategy, I think, pretty clearly. How, how do you think this, this unfolding now? And, and also, I guess, from the federalist system that we have, we did this at different times in different states. Do you expect uh, a significant difference in the recovery process between the states that went up early versus the states that are still in lockdown uh, for similar levels of the disease? It's very likely that there's going to be a second wave and that the dramatic rate of increase in particular hotspots is going to be really high. And it's very difficult to predict when. Um, so let me ask you why, why you say that's very likely. Uh, and why, the reason I ask is I'm using Sweden as an example. It seems that they, by doing mitigation, they were able to just avoid the exponential growth, and it's just this thing that chugs along. And why not right, expect these places to have similar process from now on? A very substantial part of their population has probably had it. So now we're back to my point about being able to test for antigens, being able to test for antibodies. It appears that 40% of Sweden has had it. Less than 5% of the United States has had it. And it is interesting that the flu, influenza generally, well, the, the way that this flu works and the reason why it's hard for antibodies to find it is that the, the Influenza is RNA. It enters a cell and it replicates. And it replicates really badly. It's like a fuzzy Xerox machine. And so the, there may be 100 different copies and 50 or 70 different varieties of the virus. Most of them are not viable. But some of them are slightly different from the virus that went in. Some of them are going to be more deadly. So if you look at the great influenza epidemics, including the one in 1918, and I'm, I'm happy to blame Spain for a lot of things, but the reason that we called it the Spanish influenza was that Spain was honest about reporting their statistics. It actually started in Kansas. It started at a military base in Kansas and then was taken to Europe by American GIs, and then it died out. And then the second wave was catastrophic. The second wave was the one that was really damaging. So if, if you look at the great influenza epidemics, there seem to be four waves. The first is bad. The second is terrible. The third is not so bad. And the fourth one is almost negligible. And the reason is that the virus is being trained not to kill its host. In evolutionary terms, vi viruses don't want to kill their host. They want to survive. But the second wave is the one that has been in the past has been virulent. So I'm, I am worried that the second wave in the fall, people are more inside. We've opened the economy. We're not taking as many measures against it. May be very significant in some states. And that means that we need a decentralized approach. We need individual states to respond to this. And the way to respond, I hate to keep talking about South Korea and Sweden. Both South Korea and Sweden are pretty kind of centralized authoritarian places. 
but they provide a model for how this might be done, keeping the economy open and using contract contact tracing so that you you actually can tell who has it immediately and then isolate only those people rather than the prophylactic isolation of the entire population, which has just terrible consequences and not just economic, it's health consequences. So spousal abuse, uh, stress, all sorts of deaths are going to happen that wouldn't have happened that are not directly COVID-19, but are going to happen as a result of this isolation. So I'm worried about a second wave in the fall and us reacting to it badly. Uh, I, I'm, I'm afraid that, uh, that if that comes up, uh, uh, and I'm still hopeful that it won't, and, and, and given some of the, I guess, maybe looking at the positive effects of mitigation in a lot of places, I'm hoping that we can keep this chugging along without like a big, a big uh, uh, almost, time. almost nobody in Texas has had it. Exactly, exactly. That's right. So that's one of the things that uh, we stopped way too early here. And, and, you know, some economists start thinking about like the timing of a lockdown. If you were to do a lockdown, it's not worth it to do it too early unless you're able to kill it. But there's no way to kill it once there's enough uh, disease out there. And then there's reintroduction, right? So doing too early is incredibly expensive. And I think we did too early in Texas. Texas is the lowest per capita deaths rate in the country for any given, for any large state. Um, you know, maybe Wyoming is a little below us, but that doesn't count. And only an economist would say that's bad. But in <laughs> economics, you recognize that the optimal number of deaths is usually not zero given the opportunity cost. And that's the thing is it's important for students to recognize the opportunity cost of just a corner solution focusing on just one target imposes costs that include deaths and health. This is not economy versus health. This is health versus health. So Texas' decision to have a prophylactic lockdown too early did almost no good in health terms, but it's going to have bad health consequences. So how come? How come? Would, how come that become that became the sort of like like educated opinion and conventional wisdom? And it seems that we had a herd mentality on this to a point where you know I I was attacked. <laughs> In talking in questioning that 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 particular you know uh, idea early on, and being in questioning from the from a trade off perspective, from exactly from an opportunity cost perspective, it seems that even the economics profession was very silent on this. I mean, one of the few papers early on talking about talking about the opportunity costs uh, had like silly metrics like, well, if we value every life at ten million dollars, then do whatever it takes, but. You know, that's not a number that I think, you know, pass muster if you look, if you look uh, more carefully at it. Well, we, the, some people just object to the idea of talking about trade-offs with lives. But again, we're back. We do it every day. We talked about it at the beginning. Not making a decision is still a decision. You have to say, I have to reckon that once you think of opportunity cost in terms of the health consequences, the other thing that I think is interesting, and I've actually, I've worked with physicians on this, and some physicians are sort of bravely questioned this, they are, there's an ideology that the most important thing is the preservation of life. And so that means that if you've got someone in a coma who's living on tubes and a ventilator, they may be very reluctant to disconnect those things. And so in two years, you spend $500,000 to care for someone who had no real chance of recovering. But the medical profession hasn't met. You know, I want fighter pilots 
to be arrogant jerks because they need to think they can defeat the enemy. I want uh, physicians to really, really be focused on healthcare. The problem is that they should not be in charge of public policy. We need economists to be in, in charge of public policy because you have to think in terms of trade-offs. Now, I don't blame people for mistrusting economists given how botched a lot of the government economists have made policy with the bailout. So economists have lost their position of being able to say, we should worry about trade-offs because the economics profession doesn't talk in terms of opportunity cost. It talks in terms of optimization. The sort of applied mathematics that you learn in, in a microeconomics class doesn't help this out very much. So th thinking in terms of humility, uncertainty, and decentralized solutions is what economists should be doing. And so the reason economists were silent about it was I think they rightly thought, we don't know how to optimize this. I can't write out the objective function or the constraints. It's because we've gotten away from political economy. We've gotten away from thinking about this as a combination of policy and a moral proposition. And somehow the doctors and epidemiologists were the first ones to, to, to talk to governments. And I suppose, you know, their, their, their bias and their focus that is so unidimensional on health. Which they should have. That's not a problem. They should but have even, that. But even that, as you pointed out, right, there was a trade-off in health. I am, uh, some doctors pointed it out, as, as you mentioned, we had some here in, in discussions with us, but like, like uh, the, the paradox that you mentioned at the beginning, we're concerned about overrunning the healthcare capacity. So what we're going to do is shut down the hospital for two months. It's like, wait. <laughs> well, I think a, a lot the of logic doctors, is impeccable. Yeah. A lot of doctors now would say, okay, that, that didn't work out, particularly in states that are not New York, Washington, and California. So the Iowa had very few cases, and they bankrupted their rural hospitals. So there weren't many rural hospitals anyway. They're gone. So let, let's talk a bit about the, the, the governments again and, and their ability, their, their, I guess, even their, their legality on doing what they did. One can look at, at uh, a shut a lockdown as you know violating a constitutional amendment of a takings clause right you're not allowed to take something from me without fair compensation and you did you took from me my business lots of business were taken by fiat uh through the actions of government right now um one might argue that no states have the right to do so on emergency powers the constitution the, the courts have been in general they have deferred to governments in situations of public health emergencies um but they have, we need safeguards. I mean, one of the things that worries me the most about this is that we just learned that if you cry wolf, a government, we have a mini dictatorship in the US on 50 states based on 50 people. What are the safeguards that we have against that? Because, you know, this wasn't a real bad one in some ways, could have been worse. Uh, and we are undoing those things right now. Are there safeguards that we did not, we didn't look carefully at? Should we be looking at, you know, revisiting those safeguards? Do we have any thoughts on that? Well, after 9-11, we established an enormous bureaucracy in airports, if nothing else, that engaged in security theater and made traveling much more uncomfortable and had probably very little impact on actual safety because there's plenty of instances of people that actually made it on. They just, through ineptitude or whatever else, were not able to solve the problem. After the financial crisis, we spent a trillion dollars, more than a trillion dollars added to the deficit, 
we have a bunch of new safeguards that actually make the financial industry much less nimble and able to respond to emergencies under the guise of having increased reserves. So we had two emergencies. We created enormous obstructive bureaucracies that made things worse as a result. I certainly think that as a result of this third great crisis, we're going to do exactly the same thing. We're going to create a health bureaucracy that is going to be on top of everything else. Companies will probably have to advise, have advisors. And it means that it's going to be much harder to, smart, to start a small company. It'll be much more difficult to participate in the economy if, if you're an entrepreneur. And the, the benefits of this are, are negligible. We're always trying to fight the last war. So the, the, just on prudential grounds, I think it's a bad idea to do that. You asked the constitutional question, and I would say on its face, the Constitution would say the federal government cannot do what it's done that it doesn't have that kind of police power. And in fact, um, just recently, there have been some attempts by the Trump administration to assert a federal police power. And uh, just yesterday, there was a district court judge that said, and it was a Trump appointee, that said there is no federal police power. The Tenth Amendment says the states have the police power, full stop. So if the courts start to intervene and say, there is no federal police power, this is up to the states. Then the federal government could suggest it could. Well, and to be fair, this this actually did mostly work out in the states. Um, but the, the the federal attempts, I think, are likely in a panic. Most of us think, oh, the federal government is the one that should take care of this. And the part of the reason is they can borrow. Most states cannot. Most states have a constitutional amendment where they can't run a deficit. And we the idea is we need an enormous amount of resources. I guess I, I think it's pretty rare to see a situation so bad that the federal government cannot make it worse. <laughs> I agree with that. But, but still, states went in and, 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 and violated safeguards that have been incorporated to, 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 to the individuals, right? But you answered your own question. The, the courts deferred to them. Deferred to them. So, so well, the well, I think the only exception being uh, Wisconsin where they had in their state constitution some role about how emergency power should be given to the governor. There's a process and the governor did not follow the process. And it turns out that to follow the, he didn't have the evidence that's needed to follow the process. Therefore, he stopped. Right? He, he, he didn't even try. Um, so one, one answer might be that people could look to Wisconsin and say, we need to have a process that's more like that. I think that's unlikely. Um, so in tech, I, I, maybe I can see that being likely in a place like Texas, but not, but not. But and, Texas didn't do much anyway. Texas was relatively less intrusive, although it was so, basically whatever Texas did was pointless. Right, right. And it, but it's, it's funny because uh, uh, we were less intrusive at the state level. And then localities, in particular, the more left-leaning localities were incredibly intrusive. Well, yeah, and I learned, you, and you I learned about PRA. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I learned about a position that, you know, it was an elected position that I thought was just like a figure that didn't have any power called a county judge. Turns out the county judge in this particular situation has an enormous amount of power and a power to actually block me in my house, to put me in house arrest. The county judge had that power and nobody in the town can name that person, <laughs> um, which is which is mind boggling. 
until the governor said, no, 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 I'm going to remove your powers because he has the ability to, to do so. Uh, I hope that people pay attention to who they vote for going forward and for a county judge, but I'm not, I, I hope, but I, I don't really hope because I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> I don't think it's, it's possible. Um, so I wonder if there will be a little bit more of an attempt at least to, to think more carefully about the, the local government uh, arrangements in order to avoid something like that again. Especially if we go into waves of, you know, a state goes, something goes bad, they go and lock down again and, and damage further their... their I, I think that we will do like we did with 9-11 and the financial crisis. We'll create a new separate bureaucracy with the power to act swiftly and unaccountably. That will make things much worse. All right. So let me ask you a final question, and that relates to one of your books. Um, so you wrote a book recently called Tomorrow 3.0, where you talk a lot about the sharing economy and how that that is, is, is we're going through this new revolution where technology is allowing us to reduce transactions costs by so much that that lots of things that were deemed you know, we're not going to have anything. We're going to just share a lot of things, and 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 that's going to allow us to do a lot of things more efficiently. Um, in your book, you talk about the role of cities in that revolution, in the sense that density becomes even more beneficial in, in to the to the that the new economy, the new paradigm that we're developing. Now we have a pandemic that seems to be much worse in a dense place, and riots that might end up leading to people again questioning the value of being a city. Um, do you rethink that that idea at all, or, or do you think there'll be the value of cities somehow going to take a, take a hit given what we just lived through in 2020? Well, I have an advantage in a way that being old and a professor, if I think about something, I get to write about it. So <laughs> my, my new book is called Platforms, Perils and Promise. It'll be out next month. And in it, I took back some of the claims that I made in the Tomorrow 3.0 book. The Tomorrow 3.0 book, I really concentrated on sharing and reduction in transactions cost and the commodification of excess capacity, and Uber was kind of my model. I would now say that Wikipedia is my model. Wikipedia is a platform. And so, as you remember, when, when I was at Texas, my claim was there's three kinds of transactions cost, triangulation, transfer, and trust. Platforms are a, a piece of software, an organization, an entity that solve all three of those problems. And it doesn't have to be with money and it doesn't have to be with sharing. And so it means that a decentralized solution may be possible. So let me just briefly say why Wikipedia is so interesting. Wikipedia solves the problem of triangulation by people who identify themselves as being interested in a topic. They write on it and other people look at it and judge whether it's good or not and give them reviews. Transfer means that I get to claim credit for having edited because you can look at the whole edit chain going all the way back. And trust, Wikipedia did an amazingly smart thing to make it really easy to get rid of bad changes. So whoever is managing the page, there's just one button that says revert. If I click revert, all of the changes, so you, you wanted to um, hack my Wikipedia page, the Michael Munger Wikipedia page. You go in, you put a bunch of bad stuff. Guy looks at it the next morning and says, oh, this is wrong. And it's revert. So the five hours that you spent writing, writing terrible things, it's all gone. So Wikipedia tool libraries, 
sorts software that allows us to share things in ways that don't really require markets, but it's a more Tocquevelian approach to sharing. It still requires association, but the association, the, the logic of what you're talking about is right, but I'm not, I'm not so sure it's important anymore. I think that platforms are able to redirect themselves to solve this problem, and that means that ways of sharing that do not involve physical proximity or touch are going to be the next thing that people should invest in. I'm not smart enough to know what that is, but that's the value proposition, is to be able to share without requiring proximity or touch. So I would now say that platforms are more important than I thought they were before, and new ways of sharing are likely to replace this. And you're absolutely right that the coronavirus is going to make, it's a big problem for the sort of rental model that I was thinking about five years ago. I don't necessarily want to use your power drill. Right. It's always fun to see how innovators will, will, will think through this and, 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 and figure it out. So anyway, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Uh, it was great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. 